We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I am Megan Miskimen and I am here with Renette Schaubert and we are joined by our guests, that's right, guests plural today, Dr. Sandy Jung, Sergeant Greg Kichura. Dr. Jung is a professor of psychology and associate dean here at McEwen University, who was a practicing psychologist for seven years before coming to McEwen. Accompanying her is Sergeant Greg Kachura, who has 30 years working with at-risk and high-risk youth and adults, 10 years in social service industry, and now 20 years with the Edmonton Police Service. He was previously a detective in the Behavioral Assessment Unit, managing violent and sexual offenders. Thank you very much for being here with us today on the show, both of you. Welcome. Great. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, wow, this is a, this is a really interesting topic. I, I guess we should start off by maybe um, getting some background information on sort of like what started, what started all of this. Um, well, <laughs> I mean, the first thing I'm going to say is that um, my field is in forensic psychology. Um, so my area is focused on, primarily in the past, is focused on sexual violence. Um, more of late, it's been focused on spousal violence. Um, so I will kind of point to, to Greg because he sought me out. Um, and it was not for research to start with. Um, it was purely out of just some questions he had for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it at you. Awesome. Uh let me share a story um, with how uh, kind of my travels through this um, line of work evolved. Um, prior to me entering uh, or moving into uh, the behavioral assessment unit as a detective, I was a sergeant of a, um, a youth offender management team that managed the 50 most violent youth in Edmonton. Um, and I just found that work to be fascinating um, and, and how you balance between helping the offender and protecting society at the same time. There's this, that there's this interplay that takes place that um, you have to have the right mindset to, to work in an area like that. So we did surveillance, we did um, plain clothes work with them. So one minute we could be on uh, talking to them in a meeting with, with social workers and, and, and other agencies, and the next minute we're following them on the LRT, right? Um, so when, as I was nearing the end, because there's a tenure within police, within each unit, there's only so many years and then you have to kind of find a different place to go. Well, my tenure was coming up in Y50 and, and I, I was fascinated kind of with working with high-risk offenders. So uh, a, a spot was open in behavioral assessment unit, which really within the policing, no one really knows what that is. Um, so I took it, and then so that's how I kind of transferred into being a detective within um, the unit. So my story is, uh, I was in day number three of in the unit, and I had just met. Um, so I was kind of shadowing the detective who was leaving, and I was kind of given my first client to to work with. His name was Clifford Burrard, um, violent offender, violent sexual offender. And I was driving into work one morning at six in the morning, and I'm just listening to the radio. And on the radio, it, uh, the news was on, and it comes across and says, uh, uh, update from the Edmonton police, 
they want to announce that a high-risk offender has been released to Edmonton. He's imminent risk to commit a sexual offense within Edmonton. Oh, and he's going to be monitored by members of the Behavioral Assessment Unit. Holy, like, I was like, ooh, Edmonton Police. So I kind of turned up the volume and, ooh, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, the weight just kind of, wow. There's two of us in BAU at the time who were supervising upwards of 30 violent and sexual offenders. And now I'm responsible for ensuring that he doesn't commit another offense. So it's like, that's kind of started the journey. Um, and then throughout my time, I always kind of thought, how do I determine who's of the 30 people that we're dealing with? How do I determine who's the highest risk of the high risk at that time? So that kind of got me into the area or realm of looking at risk and how do we how do we manage risk? How do we identify risk? And then through some workshops I would go to or or courses, actually it was a it was a, a workshop out of Grant McEwen. Um, they had a professor from University of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. He did a presentation on psychopaths. So I I went and I spoke with him and. And, and I'm saying, I'm, I have all these questions, but I have no idea who I can talk to. And he says, oh, have you, have you met Sandy Jung? And I go, no, like, who is she? Like, tell me who she is. So in an email, I think it was an email, I just emailed Sandy and said, hey, this is who I am. Do you have time? And thankfully, our first meeting, she didn't kick me out of the, her office and say, you're weird, man, get out. She kind of stuck with it. And then it kind of just, moved on from there. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you're talking about uh, Dr. Oliver's talk that he came out here for, that we, we brought him out for. Yeah, and, and Mark Oliver is a, is a colleague of mine. It's a very small world in forensic psychology. You kind of all know each other. But, uh, but I also knew about behavioral assessment unit in a different way. Um, so I didn't know Greg at the time. Um, at the time that I knew about BAU, um, it was because I was working with them when I was a clinician. So oftentimes they'd refer their clients to uh, the clinic that I was working at, which is a forensic psychiatry uh, clinic. And so they would send them to us for treatment. And so I would see these high-risk offenders um, through our clinic because no one else in the city wanted to see them. So we would provide treatment for them, usually one-on-one. Um, occasionally it might be a group treatment, but it was more rare that they would be put in one of those programs. And there's certain reasons for that. I think Greg can get into a bit more about the fact that these are individuals who are no longer serving a sentence. So because of that, um, it put them in a kind of precarious situation of putting them into a group program. Um, but at that time, I was working with different detectives. And oftentimes, we got the referrals for those. Except when my conversation kind of happened with, with Greg, he came to my office, um, my tiny little office in Building 6. And he was sitting there, he's asking me these questions about, um, you know, about supervision. And it was, it was interesting because it was different than the kind of interactions I had with previous detectives. Um, so it was very engaged. He really wanted to know sort of what do I do with these individuals? Because policing is not an area that you are trained on supervision and management. Um, it, on the one hand, people will say, well, of course, they're always managing risk all the time. However, managing the risk of an individual offender for a longer duration of time is just not typical of police work. So I know he was seeking some of that, that kind of information so that he can kind of guide his practice. Is that, is that about right? Oh, absolutely. Um, if, if you think of what we do or how, how they work in BAU, the detectives, how they work, um, there's some very complicated investigations like homicide investigations, sexual assault investigations that, that deal with 
that moment in time. And those could take like weeks to months to conclude. Um, uh, a really um, well-respected um, member of, of our unit said, and he kind of made it clear for me in terms of why what we do or what we did in BAU and what they still do in BAU, um, why it's so important is our investigations are not just a one-off and then we solve an incident and move on to the next one. Ours are like two to three years of weekly, if not daily contact with monitoring risk of these individuals. So it's like a three-year or four-year-long investigation because the court orders are granted for, sometimes they come out of this and they're on a bail for a year and then we have a trial for a two or three-day trial and then they're placed on, an, on this peace bond and we'll probably get into those, I'm sure. Um, and then they're on that peace bond for two years. So we're working with them intensely for two more years. Um, so you really ride the ups and downs and you really kind of, you know, so that's why this whole idea of risk management kind of comes into play is how do you, throughout that time, how do you know when, and, and this proverbial phrase, you know, cheese is slipping off the cracker. Like, how do you know when, when something's going on for this person that is slowly, they're slowly starting to go back into the crime cycle. And those, it's, it's like words and terminology that, that we kind of use. We talk about crime cycles when we talk, when, when we, when we testify in court and that. So, so how do we know that they're sliding back into the crime cycle and what signs are we looking for? Um, a, a great analogy that I would use in court when testifying for risk um, is I would say that all of us in this room right now, we, we're standing on solid concrete um, rebar, reinforced rebar, maybe even steel bridges. So we can handle two or three episodes or stressors that come at us and we're fine, right? We can get through it. The individuals that Sandy's worked with and the individuals that we would manage are on a pebble bridge. So like they could only handle one or two pebbles falling out of the bridge and then the bridge collapses and they're into a crime cycle. And their crimes, as we've indicated, are, are not your theft from a, uh, a clothing store. Their crimes are like sexual abuse of a child or murder or um, a violent, a violent aggravated sexual assault. Like, it, like they're, they're significant crimes. They don't happen frequently, but when they do, the impact is gigantic on people, right? So, so then we're at that, we're at that point of when the pebbles are falling, what do we do? Like really two main avenues. You can either support them. So we would support them through our partnerships with social agencies, whatever we've support them. But if that's not working and they're not engaged with us, then we have to flip to enforcement. And then that's when we would enlist, um, you know, surveillance teams, patrol members, beat teams, all that to kind of now we're into an investigation. And if you think of those pebbles too, it's, it's identifying what are the pebbles that are falling too. Mm-hmm. I think one of the questions that came up quite a lot in, in my work with Greg was, what are we supposed to look for? What are the things that, that collapse that we really have to worry about? Like, are those the risk factors or are they things that are, you know, peripheral to, to their overall risk? So what are we looking for in terms of, you guys love using the word, um, and it's funny, they use the term, you know, warning signs. 
and um, and these sort of red flags. And for me, I, I call them risk factors. So it, it's same same thing we're referring to, just different language, but trying to find that mutual language so that they can figure out what are the things that we spend time on. Because you can spend so much time on, and that's what, what part of the research came out of, is looking at some of the basic needs, right? You know, finding a place for them to stay, uh, making sure that they have, you know, a paycheck at the end of the day so that they can actually pay for their basic needs. But is that actually risk factors? And so, when, you know, when you look at the research, it's not. You should be looking at things like their substance use. You should be looking at who they're hanging out with, who they're frequenting with most of the time. Are these other you know, people who are involved with the criminal justice system? That's a problem, right? So trying to make sure that they narrow their focus so they have the blinders on, they focus on those things is really challenging when that's not an automatic because they're trying to deal with all these basic needs that they need as soon as they come out of a kind of a, you know, a prison setting. So, I mean, I'm going to jump back a little bit because, um, and I, I apologize, I'm not sure if you, <laughs> um, the, one of the things I, I probably want to throw out there is that the egregious things about, about the individuals that, um, that Greg works with um, and their, their whole unit works with and some of the amazing people who are working there now um, is that these are individuals who have this notification that are released into the community. So this notification goes out to the public. And I already see this with colleagues, friends who react viscerally to, to the fact that these releases happen, right? You know, we've heard this, you know, high-risk um, sex offender being released into Edmonton. And then you, I hate reading threads of, you know, YouTube videos or Facebook posts or any of those kinds of things. But, you know, you kind of click on the comment section and you go, why are they releasing this person? You know, this is the terrible criminal justice system we have in Canada. Why are they releasing this person into the community when they know they're a high risk? Well, the thing is, they've already served out the sentence. So you don't have a hold on them. So it's easy to blame the police who are supervising them. It's easy to blame, um, you know, the, uh, the institution that released them, right? But the problem is that their sentence is finite, and that's what the judge gave. And so because of that, that court hearing and the sentencing, that's what they have to serve out. If they've never been eligible for parole, and most of these individuals, of course, have never been eligible for parole. So that means they get to serve out their entire sentence in a prison setting, and then they come out. Well, the problem with that, and everyone says, oh, that's great, they served out their sentence. The problem with that is the reason why we have something like parole is so that we can reintegrate the individual into the community, and there are parole officers for that. And so there's lots of resources that are available to a person who is on parole. The problem is that once they're released into the community after serving a sentence, we have no hold on the person, and there's no more resources available because nobody wants to work with them, right? If you ask any clinician in the community, do you want to work with a high-risk offender? <laughs> Most people will say, well, that's a lot of liability on me. So no, isn't there something else? Someone else can do this? Police can do this, can't they? Only if they have some kind of conditions um, that's legally placed on them, then we can supervise them, right? And that's usually what, what police would often say. So that's why we're talking about um, these individuals, because these are individuals who are under what we call peace bonds. Um, it's under Section 810.1, Section 810.2, um, and they're judicial orders that basically outline that we're going to voluntell you that you're going to be on this order. And so these are very different individuals in that um, they are no different from people who are on parole, except they've never been eligible for parole, and now they have, we have no bite to them, right? We can't hold them to anything unless we voluntell them that they're going to be on a peace bond. So that's what makes it really challenging. So you have police who are now trying to deal with all of the resources that would normally be given to parole, uh, parolees, but these, they don't have the resources. So when Greg came to me and talked to me about this, this was one of the big things. Well, what do we need to do, right? Because there's 
we need to figure out what we're looking for. We need to figure out what are the resources that we can actually refer them to. Yeah, if you think about it, um, just a kind of a quick learning point on kind of corrections and how they, they operate is when a, when a person is sentenced, they're sentenced to whatever amount of time that they have. Um, normally, uh, 95% of the, um, of the offenders in federal institutions, that's more than two years, or provincial institutions that's under two years, um, normally they serve two-thirds of their sentence, and then they're eligible for parole, so then they're released. Um, High-risk offenders serve their full sentence, so they don't come out, and that's like 5% of the, the population. So we're only dealing with a really small, finite number, but it's... Um, so corrections, um, their psychologists within the correctional settings would do a risk assessment, and then they've, they come out as high risk, well, then they were, they'd be held in, in prison until their very last day. Well, they'd be released with no conditions, no conditions, no supports. However, they're released wherever, and, and it's the individual, the offender has, they can notify, um, they have to say who they want, where they want to be released. So we would get people from all across Canada wanting to come to Edmonton. So from Kent Institution in BC or out in um, um, the RPC Centre out in Saskatchewan, they would be released to Edmonton. So they would be transferred to Edmonton and then released from either the Edmonton Max or released from a provincial facility, whatever. So we would get notification, and it's called a WED package, so warrant expiry package. So corrections, when they flag a high-risk offender who's being released to Edmonton um, after completing their full sentence, we will get a, the Edmonton police or the police of that jurisdiction receives a, a warrant expiry package or a WED package. Within that WED package is the risk assessment to identify them as a high-risk offender. Now that's corrections way of notifying the police service of that area that, hey, you got a high-risk offender who's being released to your area. Have fun, right? Go ahead. Um, so then, for instance, if we come to our unit, we would have two individuals, two detectives who would kind of are kind of on our intake, they would review the assessments, they do their own risk assessment to determine if we're still high risk. And then, then they would apply for, uh, it, it's a protective order in the criminal code. It's the only section in the criminal code that allows police to be proactive in terms of applying conditions. And it's an 810 peace bond, as Sandy said. So there's an 810.1 peace bond, which is fear of um, a sexual offense against someone under the age of um, 16 or fear of a personal injury offense, or fear of a, a, of a serious violent offense, um, which is Section 810.2, which is um, a personal injury offense. And there's a long list in the criminal code on what personal injury offenses are. Basically, anything 16 and up um, for sexual offending or for violent offending. So manslaughter, aggravated assault, assault with a weapon, that kind of stuff. Um, so they would apply for conditions and then prior to the person being released, so the day of or the day before, they get him into court and then the judge would place conditions on him. Either then they'd be released on a bail or, they'd be, or they agree to the, the order and then come on to the order. And normally the orders are uh, two years. Um, for an 18.1, it's a year, but or could be extended for up to two years. So, so essentially that's what, that's what Sandy talks about when we talk about these individuals being released. So, if, so just for a moment, place yourself in their position. They think they're coming out. 
scot-free, no conditions, they're good. And all of a sudden you get a phone call or a visit from a detective saying, um, yeah, we're going to put a peace bond on you and you're going to be, I wouldn't be very happy and neither are they. So they come out and we are enemy number one with them, right? Yeah, they are not happy about that at all. And of course, now you have a police officer who's monitoring you, not a parole officer, not a probation officer. Um, and this is the ultimate authority that they don't want to monitor them, right? Um, but there's no other option when you have someone who's being released and who's been assessed at high risk. And not every person who serves out their sentence comes out and they go onto this peace bond, right? They're not, application doesn't go for every single person. But if they are deemed high risk, then it's the first thing that's going to happen is that they need to notify the police in that particular area, that locality, that municipality, uh, to let them know that they're going to be releasing them there. So it's now out of our purview, right? It's no longer Correctional Services Canada anymore. Parole had nothing to do with them to begin with. It's now up to that police service. So when, we, when people react to these notifications about these releases, you can imagine the first thing they think of is, well, why are the police releasing them? Well, police didn't release them. <laughs> They're actually doing this voluntarily to actually monitor these individuals to make sure the community is safe. Wow. You, first of all, you guys have obviously worked together um, for quite some time <laughs> because that communication was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. <laughs> I just have to say. Um, that it, it's thank you very much for providing so much background and just so much insight into sort of, I guess, like to, to be able to, like you said, put ourselves in their shoes. Um, you made a very good point about how imagine being in um, their position and then you have a police officer. Um, that's probably the last person that you want to be associated with after you've just left prison. Um, yeah. And I can't imagine what that does on your end too, uh, Greg. You know, like, like that is, is also probably difficult for, like, it's difficult for everybody. And it, and it's interesting right. because it's not like anybody is making it any easier um, by yelling and screaming and complaining um, when you're sort of just trying to do your best and with what you have and what you can. And your, your, your goal at the end of the day is to make sure that everyone's safe. And I know this isn't um, really why we're here to talk. We're here to talk about the research that... Um, that, that Sandy did with our unit. Um, but to go back to your question or what you were kind of discussing there around when they, when we first meet them, like, so the intake detectives have a conversation with them while they're still in custody. We see them for the first time when they're out. So now they have to come to police headquarters and now meet with us. And now we're going to, now we take over the supervision part to them, which is, like I said, Somewhere, sometimes up to two, three years of interaction. So, and it's it's funny. I am I, I in no way condone the crimes that they did. Nothing. I'm not like that is it, horrific for me to even think about. But now I have to work with a person who's now out, and it's our responsibility to ensure that that person's needs are taken care of. Because the whole idea is that if their if their needs are taken care of, and they're and then they're um, as, as Sandy has, has taught me, their needs are taken care of, their responsivity issues are dealt with, um, they're stable, and when someone is stable, they're less likely 
to go into a crime cycle and then commit their index offense, right? So if if you come at it from that mindset that now we're we're looking for stability, meet their needs, work with them, it's not that I'm pro-offender. It's I'm pro-society because this is the best way to ensure that they're not going to commit another crime, another index offense. And that was the index offense is, is their crime that they went into custody for, like the horrific, really bad stuff. They're going to do crime. Some of them, many of them are still going to do crime, but it's not going to be that, that the severity of the crime is not as high. So, so when, we, when we meet with them, as we work with them, we become the only person who they talk to. So, uh, like I've said to Sandy many times, I'm more of a life coach than I am a police <laughs> detective. Because they call me anytime. And for the near seven years that I worked in BAU, I would get phone calls 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My family, <laughs> ironically, I had young kids at the time, and I was petrified of them finding out that I had a family. Right? I didn't want that to happen at all. But now as the kids kind of grew up and I got more comfortable with the role, I would get a phone call in the car and I'd be, you know, or answer it or at home and I answer the phone and I went from, so my family would just go silent where no one would talk in the room because they didn't want anyone to know that I was talking to one of my guys. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, at my fourth or fifth year in BAU, my kids were old enough now where they're, hey, who was that, Dad? And I said, oh, I was talking to Russell. And my son, oh, Russell, what did Russell do today? <laughs> like, you know, it's that kind of complacency around it, normalcy uh, around exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. Like, they're, they're sort of... But, but you know what? I think that what you just said was really important, explaining that, that view. And, and you're talking to empath number one here, so I, you don't have to explain to me the optics of that. But I, can, I am also empathetic to the optics of how society might view that and say, why are you helping these people? Why, mm-hmm. I know that a lot of the mm-hmm. views on these individuals is, you know, why, why bother? Um, but you made such a very good point in it's it's what this whole research revolves around is the high risk individuals. If we can keep them stable, and I loved your bridge analysis. I loved it. If we can keep them stable, if we can keep somebody well, um, you're setting them up for success and you're setting mm-hmm. them up to, to be the best version of themselves that they can be. And like you said, they're not going to be perfect. No one is, but it actually is doing more good for the community, uh, than, than what they see optically, right? So it's, it's things are not always as they seem and it's about the bigger right. picture, not the, right. you know? So I, I think that was a very important part for you to explain. So thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm. It's funny when you think about, um, you know, when you hear the reactions to a community notification or to, um, you know, an individual who's committed a horrific kind of crime, I think the interesting thing is that the reactions that people have is quite visceral. Something horrific happened. Um, there were victims involved. Um, the families of the victims are also severely impacted by it. But, you know, at the end of the day, when we think about what, what Greg does, what, um, what everyone in the behavioral assessment unit does, um, and even when you think about, um, you know, the, the research that, that I do, we all have the same end goal. We don't want more victims, right? And I think the, the interesting thing about that is that people – 
assume because you work with this population or because you're trying to be empathic towards them that you are letting them get away with it or that um, that you're taking a side when really at the end of the day is that we're taking this problem in a very different direction than what, say, the public might do. Mm-hmm. So the public wants to react and they want to penalize because a horrific thing has happened. And I get that. There's a huge emotional component to it. But by reacting in a negative way, you know, penalizing that person and making their life even harder, they're realizing it's counterintuitive to actually making sure that there's no more victims. You're actually making it worse. You're kind of complicit in that, not realizing you're doing that. So when you think about what, you know, individuals who work with this population, I know when I did it for a number of years as a, as a psychologist, that was the first thing is that the first thing I learned right from the get-go is that if you don't show um, empathy, if you don't have some kind of, um, you know, um, therapeutic relationship, therapeutic alliance with them, you're never going to get far. And it's, it's the one thing that we know in, in psychology um, is that any change that happens, it, we can see that it doesn't matter about the technique. If you don't have rapport with that client, everything else is meaningless. And so they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to go to Greg when they're dealing with sort of this situation where they, they feel this urge that they want to do something and lash out, right? They won't seek them if they don't have rapport with them. So to me, those are incredibly preventative kinds of components. Um, and so taking that approach, in my view, um, is based on science, right? We have evidence that shows that building that rapport, um, Greg referred to responsivity issues. These responsivity issues is, is a relationship that you have with that, that client. And if you don't have that, you can't make change. So that means that person's going to be at the same level of risk for a long time because they're not going to do anything to change their risk. They're not going to do anything to change their behaviors or stop drinking or stop hanging out with people. Um, there's, they're going to do things that are probably reckless. They're probably going to put themselves in situations and do impulsive kinds of things. Um, you know, that are really going to make things worse for them. And then, of course, diving into that, that crime cycle uh, that Greg mentioned. And another point is, it's just not us kind of thinking, oh, yeah, hey, let's try this approach. Um, the courts uh, demand police mm-hmm. to do that, right? They, so when, uh, in testifying, I was, I'd have a judge turn to me and say, what have you done to help this guy? So it's, it's not me saying this, whatever the courts are asking, um, what have you done to help this guy? The crown has asked, what have, what supports have you offered to this person? Um, because it shows a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so the courts are demanding it. Society is demanding the police work in a different way. Right. Um, I, I don't have to talk about the last two years to notice that. Right. Um, so it's, and, and, and then your own personal beliefs around how you, why you got into policing, what you kind of do. So it's, it's that kind of stuff, I think, and, and kind of what Sandy was alluding to, like um, that kind of drew me to how do we now manage all of this chaos that this person's life can be. Because um, when they get released, they get released with the box of possessions that they went into prison with. They don't get set up in a in a house. They don't get set up. Many of them don't even have ID. So to get any um, to access government services, what do you need ID? Well, now that takes a week to get government ID. Um, and when we when we talk about all this stuff, like um, BAU didn't operate like this before previously. Like the the whole focus of the police was 
just get the conditions on the guy and then we're good. Like then, then patrol members can kind of deal with them as they come across them. Well, that really doesn't work after a while because now that now as Sandy said, they get released and they're not going to have this profound moments of thought where they say, hmm, I'm going to change my life. Well, no, they're going to go back to what they did. It's what they're familiar with. It's what they know. Yeah. yeah. It's what they know. And it's, and you know, it's funny because it's almost like you, you, you wonder, and you, and this is probably what's happening is these people who are having these visceral reactions, like you'd mentioned earlier, Sandy, is they're sort of thinking about what they would do. Well, they are from a very different place. You know, no one is made the same. No one is raised the same. Like it, there's so ma- many factors and I don't have to tell you because you're much, much more an expert than I am in that. But like you said, it's not like they're going to be walking down the street and saying, now that I'm out, how can I better myself? How can I improve my life? They need help. And you know, even things like going to the bank, they, there's a lot of things people don't know. Yeah, we take um, for granted. Yeah. So I can only imagine um, these processes and, 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 it's, and it's these little details that people sort of don't think about, right? In the process of it all, in the bigger picture, they don't think of those smaller details that make actually such a large difference in process. So that's why I think to your work, um, it, it's... Uh, and I mean, we'll get into that later, but that that's a big reason of why it's so important and 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 why what you're doing is is really so important. It, uh, as we get into talking about kind of the research and the observations, the real answer to your question around how we got involved with all of this was after my meeting with Sandy at her office, and she didn't she was very kind and didn't like I said kick me out because <laughs> um, I had come up with with uh, this very scientifically based um, way of measuring risk. And that was, uh, you know, I, for me, it keep things simple. I, I had a, a color-coded three items. A really bad was red. So when we looked at someone's um, behaviors and we're kind of determining who's high risk or the high risk, I would kind of put a, a red mark beside a person's name if they're really bad, like if their behavior was really bad, or if they're like a yellow, if they were kind of moderate, and then green if there was, meh, he's doing okay, right? So we don't have to kind of deal with him right now. Um, so I, I walked in and I showed Sandy this this little color-coded. It was gray, so complicated, oh my God. <laughs> this, gray, this gray two piece of work. And she looked at me and she was very kind and didn't kind of talk academically about it. She said, hmm, well, let's kind of change that. And I went, oh, okay, so how are we going to change that? Because, and then I had all this, you know, these forms, and she said, well, leave them with me, and I'll, I'll kind of work on it. And then from there, she contacted me, and then we met again. And then it's just through coffee conversations with people. Like, we talked about police partnering with people. Like, we do it all the time. Like, police do this all the time. We partner with so many agencies and so many people out there that the public has no idea that we do this. A beat cop partners with the businesses or the vulnerable people they work with. Um, uh, someone who's in gang unit partners with with, with support agencies. Like it, so, you have all these partnerships that are taking place. And then when when Sandy would um, when we meet for coffee, I finally said to her one day, it was at a Tim Hortons over by where we used to work, and I said, "Do you want to do a research project on BAU?" <laughs> because I really, because she's like throwing all this stuff at me, like R&R, responsivity, and I'm going, what the hell is it? Like, 
And I'm trying to read this stuff and I'm like, okay. So then I said, do you want to do a research project on BAU? And let's, and I really want to know, is stability the right way to go? Like, cause even I was asking questions about this. Um, and yet she, she turned to me and said, sure. And then it was like. <laughs> and the seed was planted. Yeah. And, 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 and this was back in what, 2018? Well, maybe 2017 when we first kind of started talking. Um, but really in 2018 is when we made it official. Yeah. Um, so that's when, you know, within, obviously within the police, there's bureaucracy. So there's all this agreements that need to be signed. Yeah, and you got to go through red tape and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> Sandy wrote all of that, thank goodness, because I had no idea. But so she would, once it was approved and she started coming in to our, and she would work out of our area. And she would kind of, every once in a while, like we would, we'd go out for our home visits or whatever, meet up with people and we come back and she's sitting at, at, at a cubicle and we kind of pop our heads around and go, hey, how's it going today? And she said, wow, I got all these questions and then rattle off all these questions. But really that's how the research got going was, it was a simple coffee conversations around partnering with someone and saying, do you want to really, I was looking for, do you want to evaluate BAU and are we doing things right? Because if we're not, then help us, right? And that's, that's kind of how it transitioned. And, and honestly, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've done previous projects with, with uh, EPS in the past. Um, and for those projects, uh, it's a very similar kind of idea. I got asked to do these things, which is awesome. But uh, when I started working with Greg and he had all these questions, I go, you know, one of the things that I did in the past projects was I don't expect community partners to come up with the research questions. Very hard to do, right? You're not thinking in, that, in those terms. You're thinking of practical questions that you have. So for me, the goal was to transform that into something that is testable. And so he had all these questions and it was really easy to transform them into actual questions that I can shape into something that I can actually answer. Um, and at the end of the day, what we realized is that, you know what, I think we have this, this growing partnership here that I can actually um, not only ask for, you know, uh, EPS to actually um, complete some kind of, you know, research agreement and some kind of partnership that formalizes it, but also we applied for federal funding. So we actually applied for a SHIRT grant. Um, and the SHIRT grant is called a Partnership Engage grant and ended up getting almost $25,000 to support that. They allowed me to drag two of my students in there <laughs> to actually code files as well. Uh, that was eye-opener for, for my students. They went through and had security clearance to make sure they had access to it. Um, and it was amazing. It was a great opportunity for the couple of students who went in there. Since then, we've collected data, and I can tell you a bit more about that, but it's, uh, we've had other students who analyzed the data and actually presented that data back to um, the, the detectives and to share what they find. So those are the, the amazing things that kind of came out of this partnership is we got funding. We were able to support students. Students got, you know, projects out of it. We had a couple independent study students um, complete them. My honor student was also involved with it. Um, and Greg and I have actually published based on that data as well. So it's it's fun to to partner with with someone in the community where they're really game for actually just putting this this data out there. It's not just about changing practice. The main thing is changing practice. But let's make sure that we can disseminate this so that other people can see this as well, and hopefully they can change their practice. 
Well, and that's one one other thing that um, that I want to sort of go back to is is you mentioned we if if I want to hear more about it, and I do. What are sort of like? Did you notice? I'm sure you did. You noticed trends. Um, did you notice like what what were you able to find from from what was collected? What what were the results? And and then I want to hear more about what effect you think that might have. Right. So. I'll point out that what we did was we did go through comprehensively through 45 of their files. Um, they, and when I say they, I'm talking about BAU and, and Edmonton gets the bulk of those releases. So those, those individuals who are released from prisons for some reason, I don't know why, <laughs> but they seem to come to Edmonton more often. Right. I won't say a percentage, but I think it's like over 50%. Um, well, and- great. It, um, I, I think a number that I had was we had 35 to 40 high-risk offenders living in Edmonton and Calgary by comparison had five. Um, so, so that's what Sandy alludes to. And why do they, what about Edmonton? And I think because we have some correctional facilities, we have both federal through the Edmonton max, um, as well as provincial, um, correctional facilities kind of around us that that's why they've come. And then when people would come for obvious other reasons, family, or they, they knew someone here or they wanted a change. They want to get away from their whatever they're going through in BC and come to Edmonton. So that kind of stuff. So Yeah, and we do have a lot more social supports here in Edmonton as well. So I think that that also draws in um, different individuals for various reasons, including the, the population that Greg works with. Um, but yeah, so because of that, we were able to review 45 of those cases um, fairly thoroughly. And some of the questions that we had was we wanted to see whether or not certain factors, um, were more prevalent, um, in this group. And, you know, what is the prevalence of, of, you know, these, these individuals. So when we, when we looked at this, um, Greg's form, I'm going to go back to Greg's form. He had this this awesome form, which, and I say awesome because it had a lot of evidence-based risk factors on there already, which was great. It was just really complicated, Greg, so <laughs> and really hard to complete. So, you know, we tried to th- talk about how to simplify this a little bit because he wanted some kind of documentation so that when he goes to court, he can actually show, look, there's been some change that's going on here. It's, it can go in the, in the negative direction or it can go in the positive direction, but without recording these risk factors, you wouldn't really have that information. So they start changing their practice. Um, and so as part of the, 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 project that we did, we wanted to look at, you know, what are these kind of things that they're spending so much time on, you know, with these individuals and how prevalent are these, you know, among these, this group of, of, of supervisees that they're looking, looking at. Um, one of the things that, that I remember Greg saying, and uh, you know, some of his team members have said they spend so much time on basic needs. So things like, you know, trying to find accommodations, trying to get like basic ID because when they come out of jail with their box, they're missing their IDs. They don't have family that want contact with them because of the horrific things they've done. So they don't have clothes. They need, you know, food for, uh, sorry, money for food. Um, you know, it's so hard to find accommodations. You spend so much time on that because oftentimes people will find out and they look up, you know, they do a Google search on him and they see this notification. So these are publicly notified, you know, on websites, on, you know, news media. Um, so as soon as they search that, they don't want them in their, in their place anymore. Um, so because of that, they spend so much time on, what I call sort of the, the social housing, social services kind of side of things. But the thing is, is that I mentioned, you know, um, this term criminogenic need. What that refers to is these are factors that we know that are related to committing crimes, right? Committing uh, additional crimes, reoffending, that kind of thing. And the problem is that they spend so much time on the basic needs, they don't have time to focus on the criminogenic needs. 
And if their real goal is to actually reduce risk for recidivism, right, risk for reoffending behaviors, well, how do you do that when you're spending, you know, hours on trying to find them, you know, accommodations? They need to find them an apartment. They need to find them a basement suite somewhere so they can actually be stable, right? They need to find a way for them to have some part-time work or maybe even get their checks for the first couple of months so they have a little bit of income so that they can support themselves before they can find work and maybe even buy some clothes so they can actually look suitable to go actually apply for jobs. So it's, it's nearly impossible to try to get to those criminogenic risk factors like their substance use problems um, or, you know, any of their family and relational issues that they can't get to because they're spending so much time on just the basics. So what we really want to look at is what is the prevalence of each of these factors, you know, for, for uh, these individuals. The second thing we wanted to look at as well, and um, we're still plugging away at right now, is looking at do these things actually predict how they do while they're under supervision? So we looked at certain outcomes like um, do they attend appointments? Um, do they breach their conditions, right? Are they violating some of the conditions on their supervision order? Um, do they commit a new crime? Do they commit a new violent crime? So we looked at um, their supervision over a course of, of you know, the, the whole duration of their, um, their supervision, but we primarily focused on the first year because the first year is like one of the worst, right? They're coming out of prison, they're angry with their, you know, the, their supervising officer, and then on top of it all, now they have to try to reintegrate, which they have no resources for. So we looked at those, those three segments of that first year, right? So every four months. And what we wanted to look at was, did the basic needs predict how they did? And what we end up finding in that research, which was, which was great to actually have numbers to be able to go with it, is you look at the prevalence, so high when we look at the basic needs. All of them had basic needs. You might have maybe the one individual who didn't have any basic needs. They were ready to go and, and, and roar into you know, the community and, and actually function, but that was really rare. Most of them had so many basic needs that need to be attended to. Criminogenic needs, there was lots of those too. Substance use was probably the, by far the most, the most common one. Um, but what we also wanted to see was, did those predict how they did in that first year? And we found, of course, basic needs, which wasn't surprising to us, predicted nothing. Even though they had all these needs, they needed to be functional, it didn't predict their, their criminal behavior. But what did predict it was criminogenic needs. The problem was that they weren't changing that much in that first year because they're so focused on, that, on those basic needs. And that was the problem, right? You have police officers who are serving as social workers and serving as people who are monitoring these conditions on their order. So they can't kind of do both at once when you're only, what, two people to start with? Uh, eventually it grew a little bit, but it's, you know, the, the added more, more police, but three, they have three now. <laughs> I think there's four, but they've changed it now where one person kind of does the intake and then three are still supervised. So really there's three. Yeah. Um, but. And what, and so if I may interject, what is your caseload like? Like you would have like what, 20 people that you're sort of supposed to supervise per so back when I, when I first arrived in 2016, there was like around 30 and there were two of us. So 15 oh, good each, grief. but we would work like in tandem. Yeah. Um, so really I, I got to know everything off of about the person um, with the other detectives caseload. They got to know mine because we would cover, obviously we would go, we, yeah. we would go everywhere together because two people, you don't want two people kind of walking up to a, a uh, house at 10 at night, right? So, um, so we would partner and, but we would, for the first like year, um, her name was um, Ellie, 
was the first detective I worked with. I'm a 25 year member. Amazing, amazing lady. So smart. She would save me so many times <laughs> in talking to these people because they, they know the system and they know how to talk and, and their whole life has been about survival. Yes. Right. So they will do what they need to do to survive. Yes. Because every day is a survival for them. So when we initially BAU would, would interview them every, so every Thursday was interview day at headquarters. We would ask every individual who was out to come in for a half hour interview and it was videotaped. Like it was a formal interview and I'd sit there with the person and we'd have half an hour to talk about what's going on for them and then send them off with tasks and the next person would come in kind of thing. Um, but there were so many times when they would take over the interview with me and I'm like a 15 year member at the time, but man, they ran roughshod over me and Ellie had to come around cause she was typing the monitor. No, she had to come around and set the person straight. Say, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? Like this is, we're here to help her to, so it really is like a learning curve is massive. Um, so I don't really know where I'm going with that, but, <laughs> but basically it's, it, 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 you, 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 you develop that, that, um, that rapport with them. And then as, as Sandy was saying, you start to really start to recognize some of those risk factors that kind of pop out. Um, it was funny because as, as she was talking about how basic needs were prevalent with us and we thought, man, we're doing amazing work. Mm-hmm. Because we're focused on, we're getting this, these guys, because we develop partnerships with rooming houses. We develop partnerships with Lake Bissell Center, who had a, a housing worker. And then we had, so we, we think that we're nailing it, right? Because um, we have no, no index offense, so no serious crimes being committed by any of the guys. So one, we're nailing it that way. And the secondly, you think we're nailing it because these guys are talking to us. It's amazing. We got all this great stuff going on. And then Sandy walks in and and blows all that out of the water. Says you guys are completely in the wrong <laughs> ballpark. You should be looking at criminogenic needs. What are you doing? Focus on basic needs. And so, like, that was a real eye opener for us. It's like you know, and when you have a performance review, and your boss says uh, you kind of need to up your game a bit in this area. Okay, it wasn't that. that <laughs> It was, it was, you know what, I give him credit for doing all that because, I mean, Greg came in with his background already working with, you know, Y5O, right? So it was, here he had that background working that side of things. Um, and it really does take certain skills. When I think of all the detectives that go in that unit, I mean, it takes uh, certain skills for them to build rapport with individuals and take the time to see the human side of them because you kind of have to do that in order to actually see change. And so he did a great job of, of, of that component of it. I think... The hard part is that how do you balance that when you're supervising 15 guys who are very high needs, high risk? And when I say high needs, they're calling regularly or they're breaching on a regular basis. So you've always got someone. Every time I, I was working in that office and, and coding files, um, I remember they'd have to get called out for another thing. And they'd be like, oh, we're going to have to stay, stay late because we're going to have to write up that investigation. And, you know, <laughs> there's another issue that came up that we have to follow up on. There's a lot of work for managing it sounds like a small number, but it's really a hot, huge number when you think of the fact the high needs that that's involved there. And so they're managing all that. But the problem is, and, and you know, and, and they had all the links in the community, which were way better, <laughs> I thought, than some social agencies. But um, but the problem is that they didn't have time to concentrate on the other stuff. And really, when you think about their their end goal, 
is if they're protecting the community, that should be their end goal. So what I've seen from, from, from the research, which I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see, is that there was movement towards finding social work um, services that would help supplement what they do or what they call, a, I think they call it a social navigator, right? So they, they, they also have additional individuals who navigate sort of what's going on with all those other basic needs. And that way, the people who are actually supervising, right, these detectives are actually doing what they actually very capable of doing, which is monitoring the risk and making sure they're paying attention to those things and making sure they're addressing those things uh, more directly. And I think that's the, the thing that I felt really generated really importantly out of, the, out of the research was providing numbers to kind of show, look, these are the really the needs. And this is how many, I actually had them document how many hours they spent on things too. And sure, they love that task, but I made them actually document how much time are you spending on, on every aspect of your job for a couple of weeks. And most of the stuff they were doing, which was painful, was administration, documenting everything. Every time something happened, there was always, you know, like the, the incident, the phone call that they had to deal with didn't take as long, but they had to document everything because everything's going to go back to court again when they want to renew that, that peace bond or if they needed to renew that peace bond. And so with policing, everything we do is we always look to the worst case scenario. So if an index offense happened that was so horrific that the public was outraged over it, there's going to be a review that's completed. And that review is not going to be pretty for the members who are involved in it. So that's where we kind of came from. One of the reasons, again, why we reached out to Sandy and wanted to, to move into an evidence-based way of working is that if that happened, we, through her work, we could justify our work that this is all based on research. This is based on, on items that have, through academia, have been researched and have been proven to be best practice in the area. So here you go, police. Now that you're, and everything with police is, once you become aware of something, you own it. So the questions got asked as different managers or management changed within our area. The questions were asked was, do you even have to work with high, with high risk offenders? Like that was, that was a question because prolific offenders are also important. And those were the ones that are taking up the calls for service, right? So is there a need to work with high risk offenders? Like what, what, what does it look like? So, I was tasked with doing a, a review of BA Unis practices, which, well, myself and another detective, um, Steve Horchuk, were tasked to do that. And it took us like three or four months to, put, to do this review. And we, and we talked to everybody. But at the end of the day, our legal people said that the police are obligated. Once you become aware of high-risk offender landing in your area, you're obligated to look at that offender. Whether you work or manage them is up to you but you're obligated to take a look. And if you choose to do nothing, then you've made that choice yeah, to this, do nothing. There's a public expectation, right? That, that right. please do this. And all it takes is just one case. And, and one case that, you know, Greg and I always talk about is, is our major, right? So, you know, if you know, we think about, you know, a high risk offender who was released in, in, in Edson, which is very public knowledge right now. Right. Um, 
and I, I'm sure you can speak to it a little bit more than I can about about sort of the the fallback, sort of the when you think about what happened after um, he was released and he was released, you know, and committed a, a horrific sexual violent act um, that happened in, like I mentioned, in Edson. And so once that that happened, you can imagine the reaction that everyone had to that particular incident. Yeah, they were probably like the the initial thing is to look, well, who can we blame for this? Right. And jump to the police immediately, because I think at that point in time, it was a different policing service that that was monitoring them. Um, but at that point, I think they stopped monitoring. Right. It, it, the, the cognizance or the, the 810 ended. And so there wasn't really a hold anymore. And Edmonton police didn't have anything to do with it anymore. But all it takes is one case like that when, when the public knew that police were monitoring him for a duration of time, that you see that kind of case. And you gotta, if we didn't monitor him, like if he wasn't monitored in Edmonton when he was here, could that have happened here? Right. These are the things that people will always remember. Right. You hear about a violent um, murder and, and, and sexual offense and immediately people jump to what could we have done differently. Right. So the reason why, you know, units like BAU exist is because they need to monitor those individuals because we know that the severity and the significance of anything that happens will be so incredibly impactful and will resonate with that, that victim and their family for years, right? For decades um, that you just can't go back on. And so when we think about the kind of work that, that we did together as, as part of this research is it's easy just to look at it as a curiosity, right? You know, what are these things that we should be focused on and what are the things that actually predict those are certainly my questions, and I, I love getting data for, for answering those questions. Uh, this is why I, you know, people always kind of say, my mother, mother always says that what I do is volunteer work. <laughs> she says, because she always says, well, you're just there to teach, right? And I go, yeah, but the research is a really key component of that, you know? And, and so she thinks, so, well, just do less of that. And I go, this is the stuff that really, I don't know, it, it excites me to think about that we can answer these questions and make change in practices. That's exciting. My students love it, right? They, they dive into this work because they kind of go, wow, this is what they're actually going to take back. I mean, when my students presented about this, this data, they were like, I can't believe we had cops in the room and we were presenting to them and they were listening to us. This is so weird. <laughs> so they're really excited about that. And to me, it's meaningful change based on data. So, so when I think about the questions that we were able to kind of answer with this project and we're still trying to answer with the data, um, I think it's, it's really important to kind of remind ourselves that we can come up with ideas, but if it's not based on research, it's no longer evidence-based. And I think what we're doing is we're borrowing from an existing body of literature, which is from criminal justice, from probation and parole and corrections. Uh, and we're going, we already know that these risk factors are important. So how do police engage in supervising those risk factors? And are they really significant in their sort of work? In the, in the offenders that they actually supervise. So we really want to make sure that we, we draw from those, those, you know, that data in order for them to actually guide them in, in what they do. And so, so to me, the meaningful part is using that data to make sure that they escalate in terms of how much their, their service is given. So there's, there's certain principles called R&R. So one of them is risk-need-responsivity. So risk principle, need principle, and responsivity principle. But I'm just going to highlight two of them. I keep talking about criminogenic needs, and so criminogenic needs, as I mentioned, are risk factors that predict. But the need principle tells us we have to target those, those treatment needs. If we don't target them and you're targeting things that are not related to crime, then you're wasting your time. You're not going to reduce significantly any level of um, risk that that person poses. The risk principle tells us, and 
the, the, the reason why it doesn't completely apply here is because they're already dealing with high-risk guys. So if we already know that they're high-risk, you give them more service, more follow-up. So that means you're spending more time with them. So in a regular sort of you know, population of individuals who left the, the prison system, there'll be a range of low, moderate, and high-risk individuals. But they're already dealing with high risk, so they already require so much time and so much resources. But they need to target those criminogenic needs in order for them to reduce appreciably any kind of level of risk for them to commit a violent act against another person. So for, for us, when we were working on this, the biggest thing was, let's take this data, let's try to promote change. And I think there's been some movement towards that. And, and this progression is, is it's gradual, <laughs> like, like anything that we do in criminal justice is that, you know, the goal is to try to make that change. But if we have this data to show that, then, then we've got some teeth to stand on, right? We, we, can, we can bite into this and kind of go, this is reasons for why we can do this. And that's what makes it really exciting. There is one thing I should, I should have mentioned, and I should have mentioned right from the very start, is that um, I know Sandy and I talk about what I did, what Sandy did, um, but there's a team who worked this. And there's, uh, in, in, in BAU, there's a small number of detectives, but they're a solid team that work together because every, every decision is talked about every action that we would take is talked about before we implemented the action. So if someone on my caseload that I was kind of overseeing, and really the case when we talk about it, I was just the file guy, you know, the note taker, the documenter, that kind of stuff. But the actual interactions are conducted by all of us. So there's everything from office visits to in-person visits to we drop in at their place of work, we see them at the bus stop, we go to their house. We So like there's all these interactions taking place and it's just not me, it's the team mm-hmm. that is doing this. So w- when I talk about us moving forward as, as a team, there's the people I worked with are amazing, all of them. And, and we all learn from each other about this. So it's just not me. When, so I just wanted to preface that. It's not me, it's the team, right? We just happen to be saying, Sandy or Greg, but it's really the team. Um, and, and there's so many phenomenal people. But to get back to what kind of what Sandy was saying was in our decisions or in our conversations with them, we would actually talk to them in kind of the same way in our first initial meetings with them is, hey, my, we're going to work together. And whether you like it or not, I'm attached to your hip. Mm-hmm. So you and I now are one. How we work and how we deal with each other that's up to you, man. Because me, I want you to do well. Yeah, and like I'm not going away. Like I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm not, you're I'm stuck not, with me, so take it or me. leave it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but we would talk about their risk factors. We weren't shy about it. So we talk about stuff like um, with the sexual offenders. We would actually talk about you know masturbation. Like we, we would talk about that stuff. Where we talk about diaper fetishes. We like really weird kind of stuff that you don't hold in normal conversations with people, right? But we would have these conversations with them so they are fully aware of what we're doing. It, it was a cat and mouse game. Every conversation, like you watch those 
shows on Netflix and Mind Reader or whatever the heck it's called. You know, mm. that was fascinating stuff. I was like fascinated watching that stuff. I'm like, wow, that'd be really cool to do that job. Oh crap, I do do that job, right? <laughs> It'd be so, cool to do this version of that job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so really, it's but it but in talking in identifying those risk factors, we would we started kind of pivoting in that direction within BAU before we even met Sandy. So we started pivoting to, we need to support them rather than just arrest them. Um, because they would get arrested and then they're released. So that was the arrest release thing that we need, we need to do better. So Greg, you're gonna dis dismiss yourself as being involved with this, but I'm, I mean, I'm gonna highlight though, it, it's really easy to do your job and not make change. It's really easy to do that. I think one of the things I'm gonna throw at you is you, you took a chance and actually sought out information. Sometimes you seek out information that may not give you what you want. And I think that you sought it out regardless of where it was going to take you, right? And so as much as I, I completely agree with you, it took a team to be able to monitor these individuals, but to actually do the research, it really involved him seeking out that partnership. Like I didn't hunt them down, right? Greg showed up in my office <laughs> and he said, yeah, go ahead and give me feedback. <laughs> and, and, and it grew from there. So to me, the, the, the huge thing is that when you're building a community partnership, it really takes the willingness and the openness of that community partner to kind of go, yeah, actually, I really want to answer these questions. It may not be the answer that I'm really wanting or I'm hoping for, but if it doesn't go in that direction, that's okay. Because all I want to do is see that there's going to be change and it's going to be encouraging and positive change that's going to reduce, at the end of the day, reduce the number of victims. Right? And, sorry, oh, I was okay. just going to say, when we talk about change, so what has happened in the unit since Sandy has been through and, and had a really a, a deep dive into what we do? Um, we were, like I said, we we're already kind of moving in the direction of, um, and a shout out to Bentero on this one, um, Bentero Traditional Healing Society. They, um, I, I've known them for years, even dating back to when I was in the social service industry. Um, I have known them, phenomenal people, phenomenal agency. And they, they, when I reached out to them, said, we don't have a social worker. Do you have someone who can help some of these guys at least get ID or funding or something? So they um, were so willing to step up and through one of the programs just allowed them. And that continued, that relationship continued. Anyways, so we kind of already started work, you know, reaching out to social agencies to, for their help in this, because I'm not a social worker, um, even though I kind of used to do in that field, but I'm, my role is different. So, so we kind of started doing that already. We kind of already started looking at the basic needs. We kind of started looking at, Sandy referred to them as chronogenic needs. We're kind of looking at that, like, hey, buddy, who are you hanging around with, right? Or what's your family? So we're asking those questions, not knowing that we were doing that kind of stuff. So after Sandy came in, she identified all this stuff. And what her research allowed for us, was it allowed for us to justify moving in that direction to our management? Because everything within policing, you got to justify everything you do. Because there's so many competing interests for money, for resources. Because of Sandy's work, not only have they kind of moved into now requesting, and now they're going to get a social worker in, into, the, into the area, funded by the police. Um, they kind of have navigators who are involved already because um, the police kind of moved in that direction anyways. In 2020, we had this vision 
called Vision 2020 that kind of moved the police into the social realm of policing, which was perfect, and it got us where we needed to be. But so not only now can we justify by having a social worker there and the need for it because of Sandy's work, but now we also justify why, um, how we monitor and how we do our work. So it's around looking at not everybody needs to be managed by the police. Like to have this intense <gasps> relationship with them. Some people just need to be monitored. Mm-hmm. And so it really allowed us to diverge to who do we need to focus our attention on? And it gave us justification for why we would do that with the courts, with the person, within the police. And it gave us kind of a soft landing that if something happened, we could say that we were following the best practice research that was provided to us or recommended that we do. We could have very, the police could very well have ignored Sandy's work and said, hey, thanks for coming out. Great job. Um, Let's just continue doing what we're doing. But to the credit of our management, they they said, no, we, this is important. Let's, let's do this. And, and everyone in the unit embraced it, which was key. All the decisions embraced this line of work. And, it was, and you can see it. Like you can see the results. So not only now are we focused on the right people, but we're focused, our, our work with them is more precise. And there's more, there's better outcomes that are being achieved. We're not just focused on basic needs. We're focused on the Krimajank needs, mm-hmm. right? Like I've, I remember walking up to someone's door and they had a patio, but a kind of a built-in patio that you needed to open the door for. And I could see two guys sitting on the, that I had no idea who they were. And then my guy answers the door Shirtless, of course, muscles, tattoos everywhere, and he's kind of looking at me. And I say, hey, Tim, I'm here to see how you're doing. Do you mind if I come in? And he kind of looked at me and he goes, hmm. And I want to know who those two guys are. Mm-hmm. Well, I said, uh, the correct answer is, mm-hmm, yes, get out of my way. Kind of thing, right? Because I want to know who those antisocial peers are that are sitting in the room and why are they there? And as soon as we now have a conversation, those guys disappeared. Yeah, goodbye. Yeah. Right? And now you can have a conversation with this guy around, what are you doing, man? Right? So through her research and through looking at criminogenic needs on our principles, we're able to f- narrow our focus and be working in the right forest you have targets to that you can sort of focus on and and right. data that you can um and trends yeah exactly so i really hate to do this but we are we are now very much over time and i know you guys have places to be and um and yeah i'm i'm I, i'm gonna have to wrap it up here but i've so enjoyed uh just the the overall insight the history the the work that you guys put into this, the the impact that it made on not only the community but also the the system itself, and the the real change that it that it moved towards. So, um, thank you very much for 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 the time today. Thank you for being here, and um, and yeah, yeah, we really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. 
All right. Well, that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think that this podcast can change the world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications here at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Megan Miskiman and Renette Schaubert. Music is by Dylan Cave, with sound design and editing by Renette Schaubert. Research, copy editing, and scripting are by Megan Miskiman. Our executive producer is Ray Barry.